Hello and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. I'm here today to talk about One Nation conservatism. Throughout the conservative leadership contest, we've heard a lot about the policy ideas which they uh, believe will appeal to members of their party, some commentary about how well or not they might appeal to the wider public. The two candidates who went to the membership fought over who is the most factorite, but there is another strand of conservatism that has not had as much coverage, One Nation conservatism. And to discuss that and the wider ramifications of the result, we're delighted to be in Parliament to speak to Bim Afalami MP. Bim, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Please introduce yourself. My name's Bim Afalami. Uh, I'm MP for Hitchin and Harpenden, the former vice chair of the party. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so let's start with the new government. And it's only right that we start there. Uh, Liz Truss took over at the start of the week. So what's your initial reaction to the election of Truss as the new Prime Minister, her administration, the Cabinet, their priorities and early policy positions? So it's worth saying that at time of speaking, sort of halfway through the government reshuffle, so, you know, it's, it's, this is only partial, but it's clear that there's some very able people in the Cabinet. I've got some people like Therese Coffey, who I've worked with very closely at DWP, uh, Kwasi Kwarteng, who I've known a long time, and Nadim Zahawi, who operationally is brilliant, in the Cabinet's office, uh, and many others. So they're a very capable group of people uh, with very clear uh, clear vision as to how they want the party and government to go. And um, I think the Prime Minister started the Prime Minister's questions very well. And so what is it about One Nation conservatism? Why are you a One Nation conservative? And what is so, it? So it's, it's interesting the way this has been framed. I mean, my, my sense is that the, the, the tag One Nation conservative may have outlived its usefulness. Because I think it came at a time, uh, post-war period, it was bound up with that generation of people who were force in the Second World War that were committed to um, European partnership within the Conservative Party, and then in the Thatcher years were effectively the tradition that was quite self-consciously binned because that tradition ended up getting in trouble. It sort of then became butskillism in the 50s and 60s where you had Macmillan and Butler and, and, and Gateskill on the Labour side and there was this sort of quite similar uh, political outlook between Labour and Conservatives and then you had Heath's government. Then Heath was very much identified as a one-nation Conservative particularly because of his passion for European integration. And then he switched focus midway through his premiership and there was um, what was known as Selsden Man that was a sort of pre pretaste or foretaste of Thatcherism. And then in the Thatcher era, the One Nation Conservative moniker was used as a sort of, that's what we used to do and it didn't work and it led the country in all these problems and now we're doing something else. I suppose, so in the modern day, I'm not entirely sure what it meant. Before I got into the House, I was elected in 2017, May, so about five years ago. Before I got into the House, it was very much, there was a group of older one Nation Conservatives, Damien Green and people like this, Nick Soames, this sort of group, who broadly uh, were perceived to be uh, the sort of very strong Remainers in the party. And that then there was a sort of toxicity because of all that. So uh, the, the way I would like to frame my own politics uh, and, w- and what term other people use is up to them is I am somebody, uh, my father's Nigerian, my mum's half English, half Nigerian, or rather was born in England. Um, and grew up here. When you are in a lot of third world countries that have a very strong relationship with Britain through the Commonwealth and history, you realise how remarkable this 
you know, when you speak to people and you have that tradition in your family, you realise how remarkable this country is. And this country is remarkable for many reasons, but one main reason is the quality of our institutions and our ability over time to adapt to those, to adapt to changes that happen in the world and society and the economy, and then make sure we have the institutions to take us through. And that's the big difference, in my view, between our country and a lot of other countries, where they often have very good people, very ambitious people, very talented people, but they don't have the institutions. So I think the first thing about my own politics is realising the centrality of institutions, building them, shaping them, improving them, which are the foundation for everything else we want to do. The second thing is I've been very strongly in the free market economy. You know, one of the people who would be regarded as one of the absolute tenets, titans of One Nation Conservatism is Ken Clark. And Ken Clark was one of Margaret Thatcher's most free market ministers. He was the one who introduced the internal market into the NHS. He was chancellor um, after Black Wednesday from 1997 and built one of the most successful economies that Tony Blair then inherited when he um, became prime minister. Ken Clark, a very strong free market conservative. I am a very strong free market conservative because with the right institutions and frameworks, free markets are the way how we build prosperity uh, for the success of the future. So I think the first thing is institutions, the second is free markets, and the third is partnership because that's partnership both within our own country, different regions, different classes, different interests, and internationally. And that's the United States, it's China, it's the European Union. So that's how I frame my own politics. It's a moderate politics insofar as I don't believe there's a monopoly on wisdom for one group in society or one particular uh, type of politician. But I do think that what makes me a conservative rather than a liberal or a socialist is that conservatives believe in the wisdom and power of generations of partnership of free markets, the liberals believe in universal goods that are true for everyone at all times, uh, and it's always better when they run it. Uh, and then socialists believe in top-down uh, diktat, broadly, uh, and I don't believe that works either. Uh, so that's why I'm a conservative as opposed to those other things. But it's moderate because I think it's accepting, I think it's inclusive, and that's fundamentally where I think the British people are. So that's how I describe my own politics. That's brilliant, thank you. So how well do you think One Nation Conservatism was represented in the leadership contest? And while I use that that phrase, I think what you've done so well is to unpick all of the different strands that have informed your politics and what that means. So how well do you think your politics, regardless of the label, was represented within the leadership contest? I'd say reasonably. I... The, the difficulty with the leadership contest, frankly, was that you know nobody planned for, notwithstanding what some of Boris's more mad sort of supporters have said, nobody planned for this to happen. It really all happened spontaneously, a bit by accident. There wasn't a plot, there wasn't a plan. And as a result, there wasn't a sort of thought-through strategy and plan for, for, for how all this would work. And that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of people felt that the leadership contest was a little bit substandard in terms of the quality of the debate. I'm not talking about the individuals. The quality of the debate was because actually this, this really came quite quickly. Uh, and so I, so I think that every sort of traditional wing in the Conservative Party could be forgiven for thinking that, that they weren't fully... Uh, they didn't feel it was given its best foot forward. Uh, I think that uh, Rishi, who I ended up supporting, um, did a pretty good job 
uh, of certain aspects, particularly free markets and understanding the value of that. I think Tom Tugendhat is, you know, just such a wonderful example of service and, and service to our institutions in this country um, through his service in the army and and, um, uh, and and many other ways. So I think that bits of it were. Uh, I don't feel that we got the debate the party really deserved. But if you then were to ask me, how would I have changed that outcome? I think it's quite hard. And sometimes debates are what they are. I, on the leadership contest, I would say that we need to find a way of having more substantial debates. What I found was, was, was so interesting is we had all of these hustings, I mean, just interminable numbers of them. There seemed to be about 57 of them or whatever. And actually, they all seemed to be the same. And they just, I think that, that um, in the world where I'm party chairman and arranging the next leadership contest, what I would do is I'd make sure that we have different types, more different types of event to force different sorts of debate. I would stipulate there has to be a bunch on young people, there has to be a bunch on international affairs, there has to be something on the economy, and then there are general ones as well. And there have to be interviews one-on-one, -on -one. they have to be. And I just think that that might have helped bring things out, though I don't know. Mm. How many of those who stood were sympathetic towards, I'm not sure if I can say your strand of conservatism or perhaps your strands, because you've talked about a couple mm. of different things. Now, you've mentioned Sunak, you've mentioned Tugendhat. Were those the only ones who you felt were broadly in line with your view? No, I mean, but then you think of Liz, who won, you know, and I know Liz and I know Quasi you know, very well, Yeah. In terms of their absolute focus on economic growth and free markets, I am 120 billion percent behind them because it is so deeply frustrating to watch our growth fall behind our competitors year on year and for the debate not to be about the growth, but the debate to be about how do we share out the diminishing cake. That is a reductive and ultimately pointless, useless exercise. And I am 120 percent behind them when they say their absolute focus is getting our growth rate up and having that as a priority for this government. And that is something that is absolutely fully within that One Nation tradition. Why? It's not because they're out of some sort of ideological fancy or, or, um, or, or personal uh, obsession. It's because without economic growth, you cannot have prosperity over the long term in your society. So that's the test. Do you want prosperity in the, over the long term in your society? Okay, in which case, Think about what you need to do in order to generate economic growth. And as conservatives, we understand at a very fundamental level, a very historical and cultural level, that the prerequisite for successful, enduring economic growth is institutions and high-quality institutions that help embed, that help uh, embody that, or well, not embody it, help, help generate that, but also freedom and freedom for individuals to spend their money, their time, uh, in the way that they choose. Because no central direction planner, however brilliant, and the Soviets have many brilliant ones, can ever be better at directing the actions of an economy or a society than, than groups of individuals. And I think that that core tenet is there. What we've got to now try and do as a party is to bring all these things together show the public we're delivering on the short-term priorities as well as the long-term. Brilliant. How, um, how well were the policy positions that you support, um, how well were they um, 
represented in that we've talked about economic growth, but institutions is something that I wonder uh, how you feel about recent history the Conservative yeah. Party has been towards institutions. I, I, I think we need to have much more focus on it. I mean, it's we just can't... There has been... And it's one of the nice things about this country is there's just an assumption that, you know, these things are just there and they will continue and they will thrive. But actually, when I look at the way the NHS works or I look at our local government structures, for example, there are other things. It is clear to me that there is institutional structural change required in both of those areas. Unless you do some of that harder, more thorny work, the other great ideas you might have are unlikely, they're likely to fall on stony ground. So what we've got to do is we've got to, to bring the analogy, you know, we've got to, we've got to get the plough out. Uh, and I don't mean the plough quite in the Boris sense with Cincinnatus and his leaving speech, but anyway. Uh, we've got to get the plough out. And we've got to make sure that the ground that we're using uh, in order to plant the seeds of what we're trying to build and grow and develop is willing to receive and capable of growing the things we want to grow. And I think that institutions are a big part of that. I, as I say, the NHS being one, mm. uh, local government structures being another, the way how quangos work, the way how our regulators operate. You know, there are a bunch of different things. We really need to think about these things in, in a more foundational sense. Mm. Do you have any concerns that uh, sort of a populist approach, some people have characterised Johnson and Johnson's government as, as populist and the trash of institutions, is that something that you sort of recognise or have any concerns about if you do recognise it? I just, I've never thought the word populist, I will address your point substantively, but I've never really thought the word populist really means anything. When you have a democracy in a demos, in a nation state, part of the whole process is that you have a bunch of people who live in a place called a country who say, um, we're electing people to do the things that are our priorities. If somebody then says, I know what your priorities are, and I'm going to do them, and they speak in a plain language that they, is understood by the masses, not just the elites, they get called populist. Now, I think that's the essence of democracy, actually. Where I think, obviously, it can be damaging is if people are demagogic or they lie. But I think that the issue then is we should say, <laughs> someone's, not dealing with the, someone's not dealing with the problem, or they're a liar. But we shouldn't use the word populist, because I don't really, really know what that means. It generally speaking, when people, what, what happens is um, the people that used to feel they used to run the show, um, they're replaced by somebody who newly runs the show who tends to do things that are popular with the country that they don't like. Um, but the broader point about uh, Boris's government is, is I do think that institutions have been neglected. I think that it is really, really important that we take people with us. I thought, for example, the way how um, they cancelled the fast stream for the following year as a means of reducing civil servants, um, I think was a, just a huge mistake. The signal that gives to young people, the, um, the actual impact on the civil service. And I think that sort of thing, you, you've got to realise it's not just a policy question. And by the way, policy-wise, it may well have been legitimate. You've got to save money. Sometimes you have to make tough choices in government. But structurally, what that does to the institution and civil service at a particular point is damaging. So I just think we should think a little bit more about it. Great. Thank you. So we talked about free markets. We've talked about a little bit the focus on, on tax cuts. 
Does, do you think the focus on tax cuts in the leadership race means that your sort of ideals have sway within the party, are, are popular, or were you concerned that um, Sunak's approach to balancing the books or the importance of balancing the books rather than short-term tax cuts? Do you worry about the, the waning of influence of, sort of fiscal conservatives who take that approach? Yeah. I have never... I've never really believed the idea that many have, which is there is some fixed number or percentage of debt that you are able to have. And if you go beyond this level, then you are finished. I think the times change. It's clear that we're at a time where we've had to fight COVID. We've now got Ukraine. We've just had a couple of quite big external shocks. At a time like that, I just think we've got to accept that debt's going to be a lot higher than it was in the mid-90s, for example, where our debt to GDP was about 45%, 40%. It's just, you know, it's just obvious that that's going to be the case. I don't think we should beat ourselves up about these things per se. But what you have to be so mindful of is that if the people who you're selling your debt to, i.e. the bond markets, and these are people who will buy British government debt for not very much money because Britain has never defaulted on its debt and so it's seen as a very safe investment. If they think that the value of that debt is going to be eroded by high inflation, they will demand a higher premium interest rate paid back to them on it. And if that happens a lot then you end up with a position where the government then can't fund the things it wants to do. So you end up in a self-defeating prophecy. So it's important that you've got to have the judgment not to allow that to get out of hand, and that's notwithstanding you know, interest rates going up very high and, and all the rest of it. So we've just got to be a little bit careful on the debt side that we don't get to the point where the bond markets say, we just think you're going to allow the value of the pound to get so weak, inflation will go so high that we're going to demand more and more and more for holding British government debt. And that is a nightmare. Now, we're nowhere near that point, but I just think so. That's where I see, that's where I'm fiscally conservative. It's about understanding the judgment as to where you can go. At the moment, we've got more rope than previous governments because of the crises that have been faced, and the bond markets understand that. But we've just got to bear bear that in mind. Brilliant, thank you. Uh, just finally on the the leadership, and we'll just come on to a couple of policy issues briefly. Um, the there's been some commentary on the number of people, the Conservative Party members who have chosen the next Prime Minister. How does that sit with you? And do you think that's there could be a better system? There's no perfect way of doing this. The Labour Party have a very complicated system. Sorry, they had a very complicated system. They changed it to one person, one vote. Nobody complained about that. Um, I think it's important to involve the members in choosing a leader. Uh, I don't agree with this criticism of some that, oh, it all took too long over the summer. If you were going to do a leadership contest at any point, the summer holiday is the time when you do it, in my view. People say oh, it was too long. Well, it wasn't that long. It was about 60 days. The Labour parties take 90 days. And anyway, so, so I, I don't have any particular criticism with our process. Uh, there's no perfect way of doing it. And of course, um, you know, we should always you know, keep things under review, as I think my, colleague, one of my colleagues would always say. 
Excellent. And now we'll we'll draw things to a close by, if you don't mind, just getting some of your your thoughts on some of the policy challenges um, as we go. So the headline at the moment is around the cost of living and inflation. So we've spoken about the issue of debt and how affordable debt is, but do you have any thoughts on how best to tackle the cost of living and inflation? So there are a couple of things and stay with me. The first is to recognise that this inflationary problem is a Western world problem. It mostly comes out of three factors. The first is quantitative easing that was carried on far too long by our central banks and they need to start taking responsibility for this. First point. Secondly, we've obviously had uh, very low interest rates on top of the quantitative easing. Third, we've been structurally not producing enough energy, particularly oil and gas, for the demand that is growing from the emerging markets from poorer countries that's far outstripping that. And renewables, yes, we are investing in doing a lot of, but over the next 10 years, we're still going to need more oil and gas to get to, re- to uh, meet our energy needs. There is no, even if there was free money going to every single renewable investment, you physically couldn't build enough of it fast enough to get you to where you need to go in over the next 10 years. So those are the three principal aspects behind the inflation. Therefore, if you've got very big global global uh, causes, it's, it's a bit incongruous to then think that British solutions then fixes the problem. So we've got to work with our partners to deal with all three of those things. It's hard. I do think that on energy, energy security is big. If we can expand the amount of wind power significantly, expand the amount of solar significantly, we can make sure we get everything out of the North Sea that is currently there and incentivize the energy companies to get it all out as quickly as possible. At least in this country, we can reduce the cost of that with combined with reforms to the energy market that will mean that at the moment, it's a bit technical, stay with, stay with me, the price for, not the cost, but the price that the energy generator in the UK pays for energy is the same price, whether it be you generated it solar, wind, oil, whatever. Now that's clearly bananas in a world where wind is so much cheaper than nuclear, for example. So what we need to do is we need to decouple, we need to succeed distinguish between the generation of the energy and the price in different things. And if you do that, of course, what we will then do is it will drive even more investment towards certain renewable energies that are going to be in this country that we control. So that is something technical that can make a real difference on energy. So I think I think we, we will deal with these problems, but I think it's important not to um, pretend that they can be dealt with quickly. Uh, and the broader cost of living point, connected but slightly separate, I think the biggest, one of the biggest problems we have in our politics is the position of young people. Younger people have higher debts than their parents did. They earn less in real terms than their parents did. And assets, particularly houses, cost so much more than they did for the previous generation. This isn't good because you're seeing an increased hopelessness amongst younger people uh, that they'll never be able to acquire those things and, and have built the sort of lives that their parents and grandparents did, which is terrible because the whole promise of a society is that you come and then your aim as a person, I've got three boys, is always to see if you can hand down a better world, a better family, better circumstances for your kids. And if as a society we're not doing that, you've got a real problem. 
And so the cost of living isn't, isn't people think of it too much, sorry, not too much, people think of it as just a basket of goods in the supermarket. That matters a lot. And that's mostly driven by food prices, which is really a derivative of energy, mostly. And so dealing with the energy brings down food prices and broadly. Uh, but actually, cost of living is everything. It's the cost of getting an education. It's the cost of buying a home. Uh, it's the cost of transport. Uh, if we can deal with, if we can have a real focus on that, uh, then I think people will be in a lot better position. And you, you spoke briefly about there, or sorry, you, you spoke there about some of the, the longer term goals. What do you think your short term priorities would be that if you were to to advise the government on this is what we should do to get us through the next month to three months to six months through this winter? What would you like to see, given the the trade offs, or what approach would you like to? Well, to see them take. Look, it's really obvious that we need to deal with the sort of spiralling cost of energy. The Prime Minister, and I've spoken to the Prime Minister and the Chancellor about it in you know, recent days about and our focus, and uh, at the time of recording, this hasn't been announced, but it'll be announced later today. We're going to set out our plan as to how we're going to do that. That's absolutely critical, and that's the most important thing. And uh, alongside that, we need to give the country investors, the bond markets, other countries... Uh, the sense that we are setting ourselves up for a higher growth future than we have been in. And those are the more systemic difficult. These are things that you know, we can do over a period of weeks. The Chancellor, the new Chancellor will have a sort of, I don't know if they're calling it a budget, but some sort of fiscal event soon. And at that, I think it is a, it's incumbent upon him to demonstrate how we're setting up the foundations of the economy for the future. So they're the two things that we need to do, and I'm pretty sure we will do them. Brilliant, thank you. Um, in terms of the wider economy and tax and spend, we've spoken about the sort of importance of free markets. So are you, are you broadly happy with the, the new administration? That, of course, well, I mean, look, it, we are all conservatives. You know, we, are, we don't really disagree that much. Uh, the problem with leadership contests is they accentuate differences between people. Um, yeah, I think we're in a reasonable position. But as I say, well, let's wait for the, the, the fiscal event mm -hmm. uh, of the new Chancellor. Okay, so just um, two final questions. One is around the EU and the Nor uh, Northern Ireland Protocol. How would you like to see that partnership develop? You've spoken about partnerships across... Well, it's obvious we need a better relationship with the EU. and But it's also true that the European Union thought it was being terribly clever by, by sort of thinking they were hanging us on a hook on Northern Ireland. And it's a problem for them too. So... At some point, everybody's just going to work out for business being dealt with. We've set out our plan for doing it. The European Union should say, if they, you know, to the extent they disagree, fine, but they need to put out their actual plan for doing it, which they have not done. They basically just say, we don't like yours. At some point, I'm sure this will resolve itself. I'm hopeful the change of government you know, may well be the sort of kickstart that we need. Brilliant. Look, thank you so much for your time. It's thank been you. absolutely it's been fascinating thank you. time. So... Um, this has been the No Man's Lad podcast. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.